Well, welcome to Grace, everyone, this weekend. Good to have you guys with us. Good to have everybody watching online. I want to reiterate again uh, these small groups in March. If you have a program uh, in it, you have this insert. Reach in and grab that real quick. If you see someone with a program and they're not reaching in and grabbing this real quick, smack them aggressively in the back of the head. Go ahead and do that. Don't stop until they reach, good job, you're doing great, until uh, they reach and grab it. And if you are using the app, uh, this is online. If you're watching online, you can minimize your screen, and there's a sign up there uh, through the website. Uh, but we really, really <clears throat> want you guys to be a part of these small groups. Big, big deal. We talked about it earlier. And if you're not sure how to make those connections, this is how we can help you do this. You, you sign up, you give us your information here or online, and we will help you make those connections and be a part of these small groups. They're five weeks. You're going to love them, but if you hate them, you're out of them in five weeks, right? You can kind of just avoid those folks at Walmart for the rest of your life if you want. Uh, but it's a great time to try it give it a shot and be a part of it. Had somebody last night uh, ask me at the Saturday services that you are all invited to <clears throat> where the parking is free and there's 1% off your tithe if you come on Saturday night. I'm lying, it's actually double. But anyways, uh, but if uh, they asked me, they said, hey, we're actually older. Like Grace seems so young and those kind of things. We're older, that we're in our early 70s. So I guess there's not a place for us. And I said, oh, no, no, it's exactly the opposite. So just, just so you make sure that you know, at Grace, we mix everybody together on purpose. Uh, it's actually the biblical model that the, the younger to learn from the old, the young inspire, energize the old. So it's a back and forth. And we actually think it's unhealthy if you isolate everybody. So what you're looking for in a group is you're looking for a time and a place that works and a click that works. So you can be friends. It doesn't matter how old you are. You know, it's, it's about being friends and connecting and sharing life with each other. So that there's groups on the walls, or if you want us to help us, you sign up on the, the sheet. And uh, we're just launching a couple weeks, launching a big new thing with the new series, um, Five Assumptions About God and Why They're Wrong. And so would love for you to be a part of that. So sign up and do that, okay? All right, we're in a series right now called Assume I Know Nothing, and the premise is you walk out of the woods, no exposure to the Bible, no exposure to the church, no exposure to the Christian subculture. And if you looked at us and said, can, "What you guys believe this stuff and you do these things, why? Can you walk, walk me through it from kind of point A all the way forward? And so that's what we're doing this semester. So the first leg of this semester is this, this series, Assume I Know Nothing. The second piece of it is Five Assumptions. And then the third piece of it is a, 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 like a, a finalized piece that we'll do around Easter time. And we said, if you will engage that for the semester, you will have your head around the Bible on, on a very, very high level, uh, but you'll kind of understand the Bible <clears throat> in kind of a logical sequence, and uh, you'll at least kind of in a, in a big way know how to, to interact with God if you kind of walk all the way through it, okay? And then our deal with this semester, our deal is this, if you'll kind of hear us out we won't pressure you to do anything. So we're not asking you to change. We're not asking you to become a Christ follower or join the church or anything like that. We will invite you to do things, but like no big emotional appeal, just kind of the facts, right? And if you'll listen to those, we'll honor that part. And then you do with that information, whatever you want to do with it. So we've been on this journey <clears throat> through Assume I Know Nothing. And we started with the Bible, 
and just talked about what the Bible is, where it came from, what we believe about the Bible. So we, we started there. Uh, we went from there to the origins of man and the origins of sin, uh, good and evil. So we, we talked about how humanity was actually created to live in a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with each other. That's our intended state. Sin came into the picture. Adam and Eve tempted and sinned. They rebelled against God. And mankind fell away. So we call it the fall. So the fall happened. We fell away from this perfect state that we were meant to live in. The next thing we talked about was a guy named Abraham. And we said, how, how did God respond to that sin? Well, he responded with a desire to restore us back into right relationship with him and with each other. So God actually wants to be close to us. He doesn't want to, to push us away. And what he wants from us then is our faith. And then we asked a question a couple weeks ago. We said, well, <clears throat> seems like the Bible is a book of do's and don'ts. And we said, you know what? Fair enough accusation. There's some truth in that. So it's not whether it is or not. It's, it's a matter of why it is or not. We said, why does God tell us what to do? Well, because sin has become what we call our sin nature. Sin is natural to us. So nobody teaches us to lie. Nobody teaches us to steal. Nobody teaches us to be selfish. Your mom, all little kids do that on their own. Your mom has to come in and say, honey, lying's bad. Be truthful. Honey, don't, don't you know, hoard all the Pop-Tarts. Share them with your little sister. So an out, because sin is natural, an outside voice has to come in and say, that's wrong, this is right. And that's why God gives the law. That's why God tells us what to do in the Bible. It's not because he's controlling us, it's because he's saying, listen, you'll never figure this out on your own. It's not natural to you. This is wrong, this is right. Come over here and live what's right. So we talked about that, God's authority and, and the law that he lays down. And then last weekend, we talked about how all of that kicks into a pattern in our lives. And it's a pattern of knowing then what is right and wrong, rejecting it or rebelling against it. And then what God would do with Israel, the, the people who are kind of the, the focal point of the Old Testament, they would know it and then they would reject it. And then God would discipline them somehow, kind of snap them out of it. They would repent and then they would be restored but in order to be restored, payment had to be made, okay? And that payment is called atonement. So that's what we talked about so far. All those conversations are out online. I encourage you to watch them, uh, listen to them, get a podcast if you want. But, but if you listen to those in order, it'll kind of sync up for you. And if you're trying to get your head around the Bible, like some light bulbs will pop on because we're just telling the story in a sequential order and it'll, it'll make sense, the story of the Bible, what God's doing, okay? So this weekend, what I want to do with us is we're actually going to pick up exactly where we left off last weekend, okay? So we're going to kind of finish our conversation. So I left you off in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. And Leviticus 17, verse 11 says this, for the life of the creatures in the blood, I've given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, all right? We'll just leave that verse up there for a while. That verse is really, really weird if you don't understand the context of it. So let me explain it to you, or it's just freaky uh, to listen to, okay? So this is what would happen. Israel would rebel against God, they would repent, God wants to restore, but atonement 
or payment has to be made. So what God did was he put in a system, we call it the, the system of sacrifices or the sacrificial system. And God would put in a system of sacrifices to cause the nation of Israel and the people of Israel to understand the egregious and the devastating nature of their sin. So when God looks at sin, God says, I, I want you to live this way and we decide not to. God doesn't look at sin as like, a, oh, you made a mistake, buddy. It's okay. We'll get him next time. He doesn't look at sin as like, a, you know, oops, I did it again kind of a thing. When God looks at sin, he looks at sin and says, no, no, no. What you've done is you have rebelled against your creator God. You have rejected my truth and my plan for your life. Sin to God is a devastatingly big deal. In fact, God says this. He says the wages of sin, wages is what you earn for what you did. That's what a wage is. It's what you earn for what you did. He says the wages of sin is death. So what sin earns you is death, spiritual death, eventually separation from God and hell. So to illustrate this to the Israelites, he put the system of sacrifices in and he put in the, the system of the atoning sacrifice. The cleanest kind of translation of the word atonement into our modern vernacular would be the word payment. So atonement equals payment. Just think of it that way, okay? So he says, the life of the creatures in the blood, so our blood gives us life, like we all know that, right? You lose your blood, you lose your life. Um, I gave it to you to make atonement for yourself, payment for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's sin. In this system of sacrifice, the illustration for the atonement, what God would do is this. In the ancient world, the most valuable thing you owned was your livestock. So what you would do to make payment for your sin is you would go and you would get your best livestock, preferably a spotless lamb without blemish. And you would bring that lamb. That lamb's just out in the field. It's like a real lamb. It's not symbolic, it's a real lamb. So it's just like, bah, you know, out in the field. You would bring that lamb to, to the temple. The priest would take that lamb and slit its throat and bleed that lamb out. And the blood of the lamb, the life is in the blood, the blood would make atonement for your life, okay? That when you offered on the, it was called the day of atonement, when you offered the lamb, sliced, bleed out, the blood of the lamb would make the payment or the atonement for your sin. And what God was doing there with the Israelites is he, he was trying to help them get their head around this. He would say, listen, your sin purchases you death. It's what you earn for what you did, the wages of sin. The only way to purchase life then is with a life. It takes a life to purchase a life. And so this lamb is life and the blood, it has, the life is in the blood. The blood leaves the lamb, makes atonement and purchases your life back. So for many, many years, that's what the nation of Israel, the ancient Jewish people would do. They would offer the blood sacrifices. It's not because God's freaky. It's because he's, he's looking and saying, you have to understand. It's not, uh, oh, shucks, I should have listened to God. Hope I don't do that again. He's saying, no, no, no. It, you're, it's death. 
is that magnitude of your sin and you, you take it seriously and you focus on it and you ask atonement and there's a payment that has to be made. I want to restore you, but it's not a, oh, it's okay. It's a, it's a devastating process with an incredibly high cost. You've earned death and only an innocent life, this little lamb, can purchase your life back or make atonement for your sin, okay? So that's where we left off last weekend. Now, this weekend what I want to do so I want to show you something. We're, we're kind of summarizing this weekend and wrapping up like the whole Old Testament, right? So we've covered like a lot of ground. And I want to show you something, this, this thread of a story that's in every book of the Old Testament. It's a really, really big deal. And, and it, it's, a, it's kind of the crescendo of the Old Testament. So if you read the Old Testament all the way through, even a, a light reading of it, this, this thread would pop out really, really clearly. You could see it pretty quick. If you became a, a little bit of a Bible nerd, uh, you could look at the stories of the Old Testament, Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and Isaac and Abraham. You could look at the stories of the Old Testament and you could see that every one of those stories in one level or another is intertwined with this thread and is a foreshadowing of what this thread points to. Now, if you became a big Bible nerd, you could read all the books of the Old Testament, the whole big thing, and you could see, oh, this is everywhere. Like, you know, you, if you knew like a couple little words here and there, you'd be like, oh man, this is like all over the place. In fact, you would look and say, well, this is the point. It's the point of the Old Testament. Right? So this thread is all the way through it. And God, as he's interacting with his, with his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, he repeats this thread and illustrates this thread again and again and again and again and again. And, and what he does is this. It's a promise that God makes throughout the whole Old Testament, kind of the point in the crescendo of the Old Testament. And it's this. It's the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Messiah. Uh, the, the, the word we would use for Messiah is the word deliverer. And so God, all the way through human history to the point of the, at the end of the Old Testament, right? That's how far we are in human history. He goes through this idea again and again. He says, there's a Messiah. There's a Messiah coming. There's a Messiah. There's a deliverer. There's a deliverer coming, the deliverer. And he makes all these promises to his folks. And he says, man, when the, when the deliverer shows up, when the Messiah shows up, it's a total game changer. Everything is going to shift around when the Messiah comes up. The, the Messiah is going to set you free from your sin. Total game changer. He's going he's to set you free from your sin, and, and he's going to finally overcome uh, your sin. Uh, he goes on and he says that the Messiah, when the Messiah shows up, this person in the future, when the Messiah shows up, he is going to set you free from the burden of the law. So, so when he shows up, he's not going to abolish the law. He's going to fulfill it. But when the Messiah shows up, you don't have to bring like your farm animals to church anymore and like bleed them out. Like you don't have to wash your hands four times and go outside the camp and do these things on a certain day. The Messiah is going to free you from all of that kind of rules and regulations and your ability to, to interact with him is going to be completely different than, than it is right now. He says when the Messiah shows up, the spiritual promises made by God, 
like the promises of hope and blessing and, and justice and protection, like that's all going to be embodied in the Messiah. Like it's all going to wrap up in him. When, when he shows up, he's going to give you eternal life. So when you look for your, what we would call salvation, you, you're going to find it in this Messiah you're not going to find it in the atoning sacrifices. Kind of it's going to be a game changer. And he's going to give you life to the fullest. So meaning, purpose, eternal life, like all that's going to be in the Messiah. And then one of the, the biggest things that the Messiah is going to do is it's the Messiah who's going to allow us unfettered access to God again. It's, it's going to change everything when that happens. So when the, when the Messiah comes, you're going to be able to connect with God. You're not going to have to go to the priest anymore and offer a sacrifice. You're not going to have to like pray to a saint or, or go to this ritual in order to connect with God. You're just going to be able to freely interact with God. You're just going to do it through this one uh, conduit, the Messiah. So this thread of a promise of Messiah is, is like beginning to end in the Old Testament. Then what God does is really, really cool. In the Old Testament, there are things called prophecies, okay? So prophecies come from the prophets who are prophesying, and what they do is they prophesy or they tell you about things that are going to happen sometimes thousands and even hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. And they tell you those things in great detail. So the prophets are prophesying all throughout the scripture and saying, in the future, this Messiah is going to be here. The Messiah is going to be like this. The Messiah is going to do these things. Now, the biblical prophecies, there's, there's over 350 biblical prophecies in the Old Testament that point specifically to the Messiah. But biblical prophecies aren't generic, right? They're not like Nostradamus, you know, where he's like, one day in the future, in the year of the cow, he will jump over the moon and a little boy will laugh. And it's, not, it's not that kind of thing. They're very, very specific. So let me show you an example of these, okay? These are in your, uh, in your notes if you're uh, using electronic notes. If you want a physical copy, they're at the, the welcome center. You can grab one there. But this is an example of biblical prophecies. So for instance, a biblical prophecy says this, the Messiah will be born of a woman. That's in Genesis, uh, the, the book of Genesis chapter 3. So this Messiah that God's promising, it's not like an angel, it's not like a super friend, it's not like an idea kind of thing, like this is going to be a human being born of a woman. That prophecy isn't meant to be fulfilled, this one, for thousands of years, but it shows up specifically in Genesis from Moses, okay? Uh, Micah says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah says the Messiah will be born of a virgin. And so remember, so the, the, the prophets are like, when you see this stuff happening, like that's like you're on the trail of the Messiah. He's, this, is, this is a description of what he's going to be like. Uh, Isaiah says he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. People will call him that. Hosea says he'll spend a season in Egypt. So somewhere in the Messiah's childhood, for some reason nobody knows yet, but he's going to go to Egypt and live there for a little while. Uh, uh, Jeremiah says, this is fascinating, he says when the Messiah is born, a massacre of children is going to happen at the place of his birth. Isn't that weird? When he's born, somebody's going to come in and kill kids 
for some reason. Jeremiah would be six, seven, eight hundred years before any of this was supposed to, to happen. Uh, Isaiah says a messenger is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Some, uh, there's another guy, we don't know who he is yet, but there's another guy, he's going to come, people are going to think he's the Messiah, but he's going to say, I'm not the Messiah, but he's going to be the one that points to the Messiah, and the Messiah is literally going to come walking in, he's going to say, there's him, that's him, that's the Messiah, that's the one that you should follow, don't follow me. Psalm says that he will be rejected by his own people. Uh, the Messiah will be declared the Son of God. The Messiah will be called the Nazarene. The Messiah will bring light to Galilee. The Messiah will speak in parables. Uh, Zechariah says the Messiah will, will be called King. Uh, Psalm says the Messiah will be praised by little children. Isn't that fascinating? Like there will be some big event in his life that he's known for being loving kids and then responding to him. Uh, Zechariah says the Messiah will be betrayed. The Messiah will the 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 Messiah will be sold. The Bible says for a certain amount of money, and that money will be used to buy a, a potter's field. Zechariah says. Uh, Psalm says the Messiah will be falsely accused. The Messiah will stand silent before his accusers. The Messiah will be spat upon and struck. He will be hated without cause. This one's fascinating. He will be crucified with criminals. Isn't that interesting? He, this one's really fascinating. Psalm 69 says he will be given vinegar to drink. Whoever this Messiah is will be given vinegar to drink. His hands and feet will be pierced. He will be mocked and ridiculed. Soldiers, uh, this is Psalms 22, soldiers will gamble for his garments. Isn't that fascinating? Exodus 12 says, his bones will not be broken. The Messiah will pray for his enemies. He will have his side pierced. He will be buried with the rich. He will resurrect from the dead. He will ascend to heaven. He will sit at the right hand of God. The Messiah will be a sacrifice for sin. So over hundreds and hundreds and at times even thousands of years, the prophets are saying, listen, guys, the Messiah is coming and he, these are the details of his life. So when you see a guy and all of these details are wrapped up in this one guy, that's the Messiah. So keep your eye out for that guy. All these little details, and there's other details I'll show you here in a minute. When, when they all kind of circle up and are embodied in a person, that's the Messiah. Keep your eye out for that Messiah. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about these prophecies is this. It fascinates me that the prophecies in which we have the most detail, so the most detailed descriptions about the Messiah fascinate me. So remember, the Messiah, he's a deliverer. He's going to deliver you from your oppression and injustice. And, and the way that the prophets describe him in most detail is fascinating. Because if I was telling you that a deliverer was coming, and I was giving you hope that one day in the future a deliverer would come, how would you expect me to describe that deliverer? 
right? You have an expectation. So if I told, let's just pretend, let's just pretend for a minute. Let's just suppose that we lived in the part of a country that hadn't seen a professional sports championship in like, I don't know, decades, right? And let's suppose that I started to prophesy about 31 years ago into the future about a deliverer. And I said, I gave you description. He will be born in Akron, right? And, and he, will, he will live here and he will raise up and he will be a, a child prophet. And, and people all around the world will know about him. And he will be of sports. And he will have a basketball in his hand. And he will be, and not only that, right? Just when you see this, that when you see this all happen, this is the deliverer. Not only that, he will migrate to a city in the north by the Great Lake, but then leave for a while and go to the south, but then come to his senses and come home and triumph. And he, he will take on the great Satan from the West and over a seven period battle when he seems defeated, he will come back and he will conquer in historical fashion. Who's the Messiah? And you, it's LeBron, right? Everybody, ah, I figured out blah, blah, And you'll be like, oh, when, when, I say, when you see that, that's the guy. And you'll be like, I know who it is, right? Because I described him that way, right? We can start over. Let's just, per, let's pretend that we need a quarterback. Let's just pretend that's our thing. And so we have the number one draft and we'll be like, oh, you know what we could do? We, we, there's a, there will be a guy and he will have a strong arm and he will be accurate and fast and strong because he must play without an offensive line. And so he must, right? And so we, that, that's how we would describe it. Like, oh, if there was a guy like that, if he could do everything, that's our deliverer. So it fascinates me when the prophets are describing the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, it, prophes- it, it fascinates me the part of his description that we have the most details about. So when they're, when they're they, the, the Bethlehem, Virgin, all kinds of, but, but when the prophets really lean in, they're like, when you see a guy that does this, that's the guy. And it fascinates me that the prophets prophesy in the most detail about the Messiah's willingness to suffer and die. And the most detail that we have is how he will suffer, what he goes through, and his death. And they look, the prophets are like, when you see a guy... Because nobody wants to be that guy, so nobody's going to fake that. When you see that guy suffer in these ways, it's fascinating. In the book of Isaiah, this is the most detail that we have about the Messiah. If you look at your Bibles, go to Isaiah 52, and you can open your Bibles up there. If you have Bibles that, that are in the chairs, there's page 511. It's all on the app if you want to use it there. So look at Isaiah as a prophet. And he gives extraordinary detail about the Messiah and his willingness to suffer for you and for me. So verse 14, chapter 52 says this, just as there were many who were appalled by him, look at this, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So this is what Isaiah says, this Messiah, something's going to happen to the, to, to the deliverer. 
And one of the hallmarks of his life is whatever happens to him, whatever it is, whoever this guy is, whatever happens to him, he's going to be so disfigured by it beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Whatever's going to happen to him physically in this process of suffering, whatever it is, is going to be so devastating that it's going to disfigure him beyond human likeness. You're going to walk by him after whatever happens, happens, and you're going to glance at him, and you're going to stop, and you go, is that a person? Is that a person? He's going to be marred beyond human likeness. Something is going to rip his flesh. Something is going to attack his face, his head. Like something is going to happen that it's going to shock you that that's a human being. So the Messiah, like that, that he's going to suffer to that point. Like that, when you see that guy, now you're dialing in and maybe that's the Messiah that we've been promising. And then he goes on in chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. So this is fascinating. So this Messiah, whoever this guy is, right, this Messiah, he's just going to be a normal person. There's going to be nothing about him that makes us want to be him. We're not going to look and say, oh, look, he's so talented. He's so tall. Or she's, so, she's gorgeous. I just wish I was her. Like, nothing like that's going to happen. He's just going to be a normal, everyday person, like a working, working class guy, lower middle class maybe, probably works with his hands, the kind of guy that kind of ducks in, ducks out, that the elite don't even notice. So that, that when you're looking for your Messiah, you're not looking for the king, you're not looking for the pop star, you're looking for like, you know, like the carpenter guy, the plumber, that guy, just normal guy. So that, he's going to be like that, and it goes on. Verse 3, he's despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. Right? So something, something's going to happen with this guy where he's going to be despised and rejected since he's not like Mr. Powerful, Mr. Superstar. It's probably something that he says or something that he stands for, because physically he doesn't jump out. So something he says or he stands for, people are going to hate what he says or what he stands for, especially the elites, the power brokers. They're going to hate that. And, and he's going to be familiar with pain. Whatever he's going to go through, it's not just the big incident that he's going to be marred beyond human likeness, but his life, throughout his life, he's going to have emotional pain, spiritual pain, even physical pain. He's going to probably live a bit of a hard life and probably stand for something that continually causes even like his own brothers and family to not appreciate him. So when we're looking for our Messiah, it's that guy living that way, doing 
those things. Verse 4, surely he took our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That's fascinating. So he's going to take our pain, take our suffering. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Really, really fascinating. So he was pierced. Why? There's a reason he was pierced. So he was pierced for our transgressions and our iniquities. Transgressions and iniquities is sin. Our rebellion, our rejection, our sin. So he's pierced for that. He's punished for that. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So that's really fascinating. So this, is, this echoes back to Leviticus 17. So the, the little lamb, right? The little lamb in the field, bah, mind its own business. He's brought in. Why is the lamb brought in? For our transgressions and for our iniquities, right? So because we rebelled and we sinned, the punishment goes on the lamb. So the little lamb, and Leviticus, little lamb's done nothing, just kind of lambing, doing whatever it does, like hanging out, comes in. We're sinners. We bring the lamb in for the day of atonement, right? So it is punished for what we did, and the punishment brings us peace. So the lamb is, the throat slit, the blood of the lamb brings us peace. So it's punished for what we did, but we receive the forgiveness of sin for it, right? It's innocent, we're guilty, it's punished, we receive forgiveness of sin from it, and we are healed from sin because of that. So this is, this Messiah, whoever this guy is, that's what's gonna happen with him, and his punishment for what we did will cause us to have peace and bring healing to our lives. It's fascinating. So it's like this little mirror of Leviticus 17. The Bible goes on then, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silence. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet, uh, yet who of his generation protested? So this is fascinating. So he's taken away by oppression and judgment. So what that means mean is this. He, whatever is happening to him, it's happening by oppression and judgment. So it, it's unjust, whatever's going to happen to him. Whatever marred his body behind, beyond human recognition came in an unjust, unjust way. So he's oppressed, he's afflicted, it's judgment. He, he's innocent, but it's fascinating. He's innocent, it's unjust. Everybody knows it, but nobody says anything about it. Nobody in his generation defends him. Isn't that fascinating? So they all, whoever's watching this whole thing, whatever's happening, they're watching it knowing he didn't do anything, but not intervening and saying anything. And what's really crazy is this, neither is he. So he's silent like a, a lamb being led to the slaughter. He's silent like a sheep before his shears. He is saying nothing, knowing this injustice, but he's not like, well, you got the wrong guy. Like that's not happening at all. 
And no one else is saying that, even though everybody knows that what's happening is unjust to him. So he is silent, and they are silent. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, and he was punished, and he was signed to a grave with the wicked and, the, and, and, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no, there was no deceit in his mouth. So this injustice leads to his death. He's cut off from the land of the living, but he died for me and my people. And then it's fascinating what it says here. He was assigned to the, to the grave with the wicked and with the rich. Isn't that weird? A weird little detail. So it's like he's innocent. This whole injustice happens. Nobody says anything. He lets it happen. He's silent. And then he goes to the grave. He, he like dies with criminals. He's assigned to the grave with the wicked. So it's like, it's like he was treated like a criminal or was like surrounded by criminals when he dies. But with the wicked and the rich. So, so it's, it would be like he died but he had no place to lay his head, had no possessions, so he borrowed a rich man's tomb and was buried in a rich man's tomb. But like a criminal, so he kind of died with criminals and with the rich. It was assigned to the rich. So, so remember, so when you see, this is the prophets, when you see all this happening, like you're on, you're on pace to find the Messiah, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, it's really, really fascinating. So this blows my mind. So apparently this Messiah that's being promised, it's the Lord's will. It's God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. So Whatever happens that mars him beyond human recognition, apparently God wants this to happen. So it's the Lord's will that this happens, that he is, that he is caused to suffer and to crush him, right? So the, God wants it to happen. And what's weird, because he's silent, if you look at the verse right before it, right, there was no, there, there, he had done no violence, there was no deceit. So because he's silent in the middle of this injustice, it seems like, if I'm doing the math correctly, trying to read the prophecies, I'm an ancient Jewish person looking forward, seems like God wants this to happen and the Messiah is participating in it. He wants it to happen also, right? So the Lord wants this to happen. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Isn't that fascinating? So the Lord wants this to happen. The Messiah wants it to happen. And he makes his life an offering for sin. So again, it harkens back to Leviticus 17, 11. It's almost like God goes and gets his most precious possession, his lamb, and he brings it to the atoning altar, like, the, like the, the God's lamb, like the lamb of God, it's his will to bring it, if I'm reading it right, to bring it, and he has his lamb's blood shed as the payment for sin, and it's like this Messiah is the atoning sacrifice of God 
for the sins of the world. And it seems like that's the plan. That God wants that to happen. The Messiah wants that to happen. And so the Lamb of God, you know, like in Leviticus, the Lamb of God, the sins of the world are placed upon the Lamb. Like he's blamed for it, like the innocent Lamb, Leviticus. And the blood of the Lamb of God is the blood that makes atonement for sin like the lamb did in Leviticus. Look down at verse 12. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. It was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this Messiah now I'm an ancient Jewish person. I'm trying to read the prophecies. The Messiah is the Lamb of God, just like the Lamb that I bring to the temple. He is the atoning sacrifice, but the Messiah is in on it because he poured out his life. He didn't lose it. He wasn't drugged, kicking and screaming. He like participated with God's will. So he poured out his life, and he was numbered among the transgressors. It's, it's like a, he who knew no sin became sin for us. All the blame of sin went on the Lamb of God, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for, intercession for the transgressions. The word intercession is a fascinating word. A way to think of that word in a modern voc uh, vocabulary would be a mediator or a conduit, and like a mix of those two ideas, a mediator of a conduit. So he bore the sins of many, and became the mediator for the transgressors to God. So it's kind of like, if I want to get to God, I go through the conduit of this Messiah. Like the Messiah is the path to God, and then the Messiah, whatever the Messiah does in my life, he's the atoning sacrifice. He's the one that allows me then to interact with God. So Isaiah works through all this. He says, guys, listen, ancient Jewish people, this Messiah will be the atoning sacrifice. So, so when, when you see that happen, great, great detail, and there's, by the way, there's more. I just didn't go through it all. A great, great detail about his suffering and his death. When you see that happen in that detail and... It's a human being, and born of a virgin, and Bethlehem, and Nazarene, and he's the king, and vinegar, and massacre, and the kids like him. So you see not a few, but all of, 352, all of those prophecies in this guy, and this guy does that stuff in that detail, and raises again from the dead, that's your Messiah. So when you see that, that's who that is. And that, that's the key. That's the key to forgiveness of sin. That's the key to life. That's the key to salvation. That, that's everything. That he will do everything that I told you that he will do, but it will be embodied in this one person, the Messiah, the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He will be caught up in that. And when you guys see that happen, that's your guy. And that's the Messiah, and that's the one that you believe in, and that's the one that you follow. 
Okay? All right. Now, next weekend, I'll tell you who it is. I don't know, it's a cliffhanger. I'm going to tell you who it is. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it, right? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with a J, and it's not Jeff, all right? <laughs> so you got you to come back next week and find out who it is, right? But the Messiah is the Savior, and the whole Old Testament, it, literally, this is the first part of the book, the whole Old Testament is this promise and this pointing to this Messiah. And when you see that guy, that's who you're looking for, right? Okay. All right, that's it. That's our deal. That's our deal. I told you, I'm not, I'm not going to try to get you, talk you into anything. I, if you'll hear me out, I'll just tell you what it is. All right, and that's our deal. So that's the Messiah. And now, now you have to kind of own that and think about it and decide what you want to do with that, okay? So this is what we'll do. We're going to take a little, the little bit of time and think and pray because we all live crazy lives. And so this is the best 12 minutes you can spend in your week. Just be still, hold it. You don't need coffee. All right? And just think and pray for a second. Let me, let me give you a couple ideas if you want them that you could think about or that you could pray about. Okay? So here's one idea. For many of us, I, I, I bet you there's a bunch of us, maybe not, but maybe, if you're a person who needs help and needs hope, that's a big reason why people go to church. It's a big reason why you, you watch, you know, on, on the live streams. Because you look and say, I need help and hope. And we're all like that. We all have terrible weeks. We all have big losses. We all have horribly tragic things happen to us and we're all just stressed out. So, so it is very, very common that we need help and we need hope in our life. Okay? Now, in our culture, we are taught that when we need help and we need hope, we are taught to find escape. It's not because our culture's collapsing and everything's not the way it used to be. It's just the way that we're taught. If you need help and you need hope, what you, what you do, I do it too, you look for escape or you look for distraction. We'll say, I got to get away or I got to do something. I'm that way too. When I need help and I need hope and I'm stressed out, I look to escape. Escape for me usually involves the woods, even more ideally a four-wheeler, even more ideally some caliber of weapon, right? So I, I, that's the way that I like to get away. I like to escape. And I like to get away with my, by myself or a few friends. I like to think and be in the woods. and I like to escape. Since my neighbors and our development don't tend to like all that happening at once, another way of escape for me is to watch a good movie. There's something about an alien robot blowing up another alien robot that just makes me feel relaxed, right? And so we'll watch a movie or something like that. So I'm like that too. We're all like that. We tend to escape. Here's the problem with escape and distraction is reality is always crouching at the door, okay? Now, for thousands of years, the span of the Old Testament, those people are just like you and me. Same problems played out in a different way. Frustration, stress, marriage, government, economy, all the, all the same thing played out in a different way. Okay, people are people. That's the way it is. And the message of the Old Testament is, is this. The question of the Old Testament is this, and it would apply to you and me today. Maybe when I need help and I need hope, maybe I don't need a distraction. 
maybe what I need is a Messiah, a deliverer. We would say a savior. I need someone and something bigger than me that will not just get my mind off of stuff for a few hours, but can actually change the dynamic of the life that I'm living. So something to think about, I'm throwing it out there. Maybe when we long for escape, what we're really longing for is a Messiah. And maybe even during our times of six, I'm all about the beach and the woods, and right, it's fun. But during that time, when our heads are clear, if we put our hearts on knowing and finding the Messiah, maybe that time away, we could create a different relationship and come back with a game-changing place. Just a thought. All right, here's the second thought I had. It was this one. If God is most characterized by his willingness to suffer and die, if, he is, if his hallmark is pouring out his life, being marred beyond human recognition, if that is the most detailed characteristic of what God is like, does that at all cause you to re-examine your ideas about God's motives? So if God is most characterized by his willingness to suffer and die and pour his life out and be the Lamb of God, maybe his motive isn't to control your life. Maybe his motive isn't to keep you from having fun. Maybe his motive isn't to get your money. Maybe his motive isn't to get you to be a part of organized religion. Maybe his motives are pure and because we see what he set out to do and what he did, if it could cause us to trust his head and his heart differently, and maybe we would read the Bible and understand God differently by understanding his motives in a different way. Right, just a thought, something to chew on if you want and to think about, okay? So I'm gonna pray for us. And uh, when I pray, the band will come out and they'll create a little space for us, a few songs, rest of our service. Sit tight, enjoy them, focus them on them, and just think. Clear your head and think about God for a few minutes and, and see maybe what he wants you to do with this part of him that you discovered in a fresh way today, okay? Jesus, we love you. Thanks for loving us. Thanks that you want to be with us, that you want to know us that you want to journey through life with us. Thank you, God, that you, you say in Psalms, you are our ever-present help in time of trouble. And so, God, when we're in trouble, if you would help us turn to you, know you, understand you in a different way, we would be so grateful for that. So, God, I pray on a very personal level for every individual that you would press into their heart in a personal way, that you would meet their needs and know their pain in a personal way, and that you would give them help and hope in a personal way even now. Do that in this time, Jesus, in your name. Amen.